Welcome to Something to Digest with me, Dr. Raymond Miss. We developed these podcasts to reach out to other healthcare professionals as well as patients in our community. Each podcast will contain bite-sized pieces of information and wisdom I have learned over the last 25 years as a board-certified gastroenterologist practicing in New England. I recently began practicing my specialty at the Villages in Central Florida. My goal is to make a difference in at least one person's life every day to live the happiest and healthiest life they can, one day at a time. I hope that individual is you. Hello everyone, this is Dr. Raymond Miss, and welcome to another episode of Something to Digest. I am a board-certified gastroenterologist working for the subspecialty section of the Villages Health. Today, I thought I would talk to you about underlying cirrhosis. I know that cirrhosis is a complicated topic, but the fact is that these are our most complicated patients. In addition, comma, when the cirrhosis becomes uncompensated, uh, we know it can lead to numerous hospitalizations. As an example, 14 to 15% of our uncompensated cirrhosis patients are readmitted within one week, and almost 40% of them readmitted within one month. Close to 50% of them are readmitted by three months. Now, this is a significant issue because It is obviously costly, but it also puts these individuals at risk for other complications, such as pneumonia, and with each readmission, we see an increase in morbidity and mortality. As discussed previously, we are seeing more and more cases with underlying liver disease, primarily with the explosion of the diagnosis of non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. We find that many of our cirrhotics today can be on uh, a matter of threefold causes. The first being alcohol, uh, the second being uh, NASH or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and of course then viral hepatitis uh, being next. Our role as practitioners in the community are still to care for these people and prevent complications and readmissions to the hospital. So just to review a couple of things, the first will be is to identify some of our cirrhotics. I know we didn't mention it earlier, but our autoimmune hepatitis patients often will present with cirrhosis uh, at the first time of diagnosis. And they were, or went under the radar for many years with abnormal liver function studies, but present with cirrhosis. So there's something called the fibrosis four scale. You can Google it. Uh, If you want to look at some of your patients with known chronic liver disease, they take into account the patient's age, the AST, ALT, and the platelet count. Now, just a quick summary is uh, age is important because we do know that when it comes to fibrosis of the liver, that if we can intervene early enough and treat the underlying cause, fibrosis can actually be reversed. The older the patient, the likelihood that the cirrhosis is far more progressed and the liver dysfunction far more progressed. 
and these people or individuals have a poor prognosis. So the fibrosis four, that's the number four, is a quick scale and number that we can utilize to see if the patient has underlying fibrosis and significant fibrosis by definition is cirrhosis. So how do I approach my patients with cirrhosis? So for years, what I have done is that I monitor these people every three months. I try to educate them because some of the things when it comes to decompensation can be their own uh, lack of treatment of the underlying disorder. And I, I would have to say, uh, whether it's viral hepatitis, not treating hepatitis C or B, uh, when it's alcoholism, uh, patients continuing to abuse uh, alcohol, uh, these have been associated with certainly decompensation. The others can be basically on our shoulders. A patient could get hospitalized, placed on diuretics as an example for ascites or anasarca, get discharged, and then their renal function isn't properly followed. The other would be for our patients with portal hypertension being placed on a beta blocker, uh, which we'll get into shortly, uh, and not being monitored or treated appropriately. We also know that patients on non-select beta blockers or any beta blockers who have had peritonitis have actually a worse prognosis compared to their counterparts who are not on a beta blocker. So we have to be careful of some of the medications uh, we put these individuals on and how we monitor them. So to summarize, I'd like to follow my cirrhotic patients every three months if they are compensated and stable. And what I mean by compensated, I mean is, is that they don't have hepatic encephalopathy, they don't have recurrent ascites or renal insufficiency, they don't have a, a GI bleed. Uh, so for these individuals, uh, I see every three months. At those three-month visits, uh, it should include a physical exam because I need to know what their mental status is like. Uh, I need to check for asteristics because I need to be screening for hepatic encephalopathy. But with each three-month visit, I will get a BUN creatinine electrolytes to monitor their renal function. Of course, if they are on diuretics, uh, I will uh, monitor possibly their renal function more closely, especially if adjustments were made. I will do an LFT profile, uh, and I will also do a CBC with platelet count and a PT slash INR. Now, the platelet count uh, of the CBC is important uh, because I need to know if they are at risk for spontaneous bleeding. I'll be happy with anything over 60,000. Uh, for the PTINR, that can give me some information about the actual function of the liver, as well as the albumin on the uh, liver chemistry panel. And we had another discussion uh, about how to interpret the liver chemistries. So uh, with that, at one visit, I'll also do an alpha fetoprotein. Um, and then at the three-month visit following, I will check a right upper quadrant ultrasound to screen for hepatoma. So I try to educate my patients to say we need to get together every three months because you as a cirrhotic patient are at risk for liver failure as well as cancer of the liver. And those are the two basic statements I will start with. So they then tend to get motivated to follow regularly. 
If they're an alcoholic, I will encourage them to participate in a 12-step recovery program and abstain from alcohol. If they have hepatitis C, treat them or any other chronic liver disease, uh, recommend the appropriate treatments because if caught early enough, uh, as we mentioned, fibrosis can be reversible. So I see them every three months for basic lab work. One visit, I will get an alpha fetoprotein, and the next visit, I will get a right upper quadrant ultrasound, and that will help me screen these individuals for liver failure, as well as cancer of the liver. So moving forward, you know, if there are any uh, abnormalities, I address them appropriately. So why do some of these individuals have difficulties or issues? What are the main things we look for? So I just mentioned liver cancer and each three month visit, I am doing some screening test for hepatoma or hepatocellular carcinoma. And that could be an alpha fetoprotein or the ultrasound as mentioned. Uh, But the other thing too is hepatic encephalopathy. Uh, We know that these individuals uh, can have a complication of hepatic encephalopathy, uh, which was a major uh, indicator for readmission to the hospital, as well as uh, increasing the expense of our healthcare dollars. So uh, it has been shown that lactulose uh, is very important. I always encourage my patients to have at least two to three bowel movements a day in the hopes of preventing uh, or curbing uh, underlying hepatic encephalopathy. And recent studies have shown that the antibiotic Zyfaximum, uh, which is Rifaxum, at 550 milligrams BID, has been shown to statistically improve the risks for readmission to the hospital from hepatic encephalopathy. So uh, lactulose and titrating the dosage uh, so the patient has two to three bowel movements a day and the addition of rifaximin have been very beneficial uh, for decreasing morbidity and mortality associated with hepatic encephalopathy. Of note, if these individuals have not been encephalopathic, uh, then you don't need to be this aggressive. It's also very helpful to have a family member in the room because of that old saying, you don't know what you don't know, that if these individuals are forgetful, at least their significant other or friend can add to some of the history. So preventing or treating hepatic encephalopathy aggressively is very important. For those who don't like the taste of lactulose, uh, I will use Marilax. Uh, I think we have seen in, in clinical studies, but also my own clinical experience, especially as a house officer uh, working in the hospital, as long as I can get those patients to move their bowels, they will wake up uh, quicker and their mental status will improve. So you can also use Marilax for those who don't like lactulose. So we need to be aggressive with hepatic encephalopathy treatment and monitoring. The next will be for other complications of portal hypertension, and that could be upper GI bleeds, esophageal varices, or portal hypertensive gastropathy. For my cirrhotics, when they are compensated, I will schedule a screening EGD every two years, screening for esophageal varices. So if an individual has no varices, they come back every two years for a screening endoscopy. If I identify a varicine, and if they're like a grade one or show no sequela of recent hemorrhage, we might get more aggressive in following them closer 
or consider starting them on a non-select beta blocker such as Indorol or Natalol. That's a non-select beta blocker can actually lower portal pressures and decrease the incidence of variceal hemorrhage or worsening of varices. Now, uh, it's hard for us to measure portal pressures in clinical practice, but a pearl would be that we need to titrate their heart rate to between 50 and 55 beats per minute if tolerated. It has been shown that the portal pressure will drop statistically below 12 millimeters of mercury. And studies have shown if the portal pressure is less than 12 millimeters of mercury, that these individuals should not bleed from their varices. It is all based on the size of the varice and the pressure within uh, the veins. Uh, so if I'm putting them on a non-select beta blocker, let's get their heart rates to between 55 and 60. Now, there's a little pearl here that if an individual has spontaneous bacterial peritonitis or SBP, uh, then we will stop the beta blocker because it seems that the individuals with SBP have an higher, higher incidence of morbidity and mortality, almost by 60% from their counterparts who are not on a beta blocker. So if there's one situation where we'll stop the beta blocker, it will be those who have had SBP. So esophageal varices, portal hypertension, that's another thing we need to look for. Another thing that has been associated with a high readmission rate, it, which is going to sound silly uh, on this podcast, is the use of a, a proton pump inhibitor. It seems, and we don't know what the significance of that is, but many individuals who have been readmitted to the hospital with complications from uh, their liver disease, which is decompensation, many of them have been on a proton pump inhibitor when it comes to their medications. So some of these individuals don't even need to be on a beta blocker because portal hypertensive gastropathy and esophageal varices is not an acid-related issue. Now, what role the PPI is, maybe because they're, they're sicker patients, but it seems that almost all these individuals were on a PPI, and it really hurts me to say that because I've been a big advocate for PPI use for other disorders such as reflux and ulcers, but maybe with our patients with SBP, we need to be thinking twice about that because it will decrease the morbidity and mortality. I think another uh, issue with respects of uh, these patients with cirrhosis is also the, the treatment of ascites and anasarca. So if an individual has ascites, which of course uh, can be very taxing to them, very uncomfortable. Access to a large and diagnostic paracentesis is very important to give them relief. Uh, I always do a diagnostic paracentesis at the time of the large volume paracentesis because I need to know if they have SBP. Uh, SPP is also known as spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. So I will make sure that they do a white blood cell count for me and anything more than 250 white cells uh, in the peritoneal fluid is highly suggestive of peritonitis. Uh, anything more than 500 white blood cells per deciliter is uh, diagnostic. And we will put these people on a quinolone or a third generation cephalosporin. 
Um, so I, I think certainly doing that is important. Uh, for outpatient control of ascites, if it's not tense, I will start with a combination of furosemide and spironolactone. And I always do a ratio, if for the most part, never say never in medicine, right? Because medicine's an art, not a science. But typically, if a patient has normal renal function, uh, I will place them on 100 milligrams of spironolactone and 40 milligrams of Lasix a day. And I usually bring them back in three to four weeks and check their BUN and creatinine as well as electrolytes. Uh, I can go as high and, and we can increase in increments by 100 milligrams of the spironolactone and 40 milligram increments to a maximum of 400 milligrams of spironolactone and 160 milligrams of Lasix. But I usually start with 100 milligrams of spironolactone and a 40 milligram dosage of Lasix. I bring them back in, in approximately uh, three or four weeks and recheck their BUN and creatinine. It has been shown that if these people are monitored fairly closely, uh, we can possibly avoid renal insufficiency, uh, which will be essentially a second organ as a victim now from their liver disease. So as I conclude uh, this, I think the key will be as a team, we need to work together with our cirrhotic patients. I like to follow them uh, every three months with routine blood work and physical examinations. At each visit, we'll monitor the renal function if they're, if they're on diuretics. But clearly at each uh, visit, we will be doing a screening test for hepatocellular carcinoma. If you have any concerns about your patients, feel free to give me or Dr. Sonsky a call. Uh, I hope that you found that this podcast was useful. If you have any additional questions or requests for different topics, feel free to reach out at podcast at thevillageshealth.com. I thank you for your time and have a great day and uh, be safe and keep smiling. This is Dr. Raymond Miss, and thank you for listening to Something to Digest. As you can tell, medicine is both an art and a science, and I thank you for your time. If you have a question or a comment, please email us at drmisspodcast at gmail.com. That's D-R-M-I-S-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Or visit us on Facebook at Something to Digest. And that is www.facebook.com forward slash Something to Digest. May you be blessed with health and happiness on your journeys, and please keep smiling. My mission is to make a difference in at least one person's life every day live the happiest and healthiest life they can one day at a time. I hope that person is you.